Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, finding stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma and dissociation, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org where there's a button for donations and you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. You can also support us on Patreon for early access to updates and what's unfolding for us. Simply search for Emma Sunshaw on Patreon. We appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. We are also super excited to announce the release of our new online community, a safe place for listeners to connect about the podcast. It feels like any other social media platform where you can share, respond, join groups, and even attend events with us, including the new monthly meetups that start this month. Go to our webpage at www.systemspeak.org to join the community. We're excited to see you there. Uh, let me begin with a little bit of introduction. Uh, what I want to talk about are using healing stories to work with clients, uh, particularly dissociative clients, but really any any client and any person. Uh, I've been in private practice in Austin, Texas for about uh, 30 plus years now. Uh, and uh, you can tell by the gray hair. Though most of the gray hair I had out of the first two years in private practice, you know, uh, but... Uh, it'll do that to you. I was originally trained in uh, systems theory and worked with families and couples. And so I tend to come at things from a systemic perspective. But then all of a sudden I got involved in learning psychodrama. And that took me, my systems perspective, and took it into this amazing story perspective. And so what you're getting is a, is a bit of a mix here. It's it's neither exactly one or exactly the other. Um and uh, what I think I'll do t- today is I want to uh, introduce some ideas about what stories are and what gives them their power. And then I want to talk at the end a-, a bit about how to use them. Now, I tend to have this great outline that has all these sections, but in, in truth, what I'm really doing is telling a very long story here. So uh, I may interweave things when they seem appropriate. And I really want questions um, because one of the things I know is, is I'm, you know, I'm just this guy who likes stories. There are also other therapists here and I may not be the best therapist in the room. So feel free to, uh, to, to do the little hand signal. Uh, and then I will, I will uh, pick up your question as soon as I can take a break in my brain. And then I always answer questions. Uh, well, I always respond. Sometimes they even answer the question, but you know, that's the way that works. I do want to start with a trigger warning. Uh, whenever we talk about um, therapy with people who have been through traumatic experiences, it's hard to scrub all the trauma out of that. So if you if you notice yourself becoming fuzzy, lightheaded, uh, easily distracted, you might want to take a break for a minute 
I'm not going to be insulted. I'm not going to get mad at anybody who, who either wants to, to shut it down or go off and get a drink of water. Come back if you can, but if you can't, I wish you well, and I really appreciate you taking care of yourself. You know, what I'd also like to do up front, as I do in all my workshops, uh, is mention some names of some people that went before me. Uh, Ruth Byers was a lovely lady who made my childhood um, a lot better than it could have been. And taught me a lot about stories and about the richness of the context the stories come out of. And I also want to thank uh, Dorothy and Mort Satin, who taught me psychodrama. And really, they were there for the for my professional childhood, and and brought me up and brought me both into the community of therapists, but also helped me stay connected to the clients in a special way. And I've always appreciated that. Okay, so stories. Ah. Well, let me start with a story. Uh, everybody wonders, well, Bill, why are you so interested in stories? Uh, well, I've been a storyteller all my life, and now I'm a professional story listener, which is you know, pretty simple. And I all attributed to um, the fact that I grew up on the wrong side of the courthouse. That's not like the wrong side of the tracks. It was still a nice house. But I grew up in this little town, and down the block from us was this huge courthouse. It was about three stories tall. It spanned the whole block. And it was between us and all the TV stations in Houston. Which meant that what we did after dinner is we sat around the table and told stories. Now, these were not organized stories, okay? This was what happened to you today. But it came out as a story. And this is, oh, did you hear about your cousin? You know, her job did this. Or let me tell you about your ancestors before you even got here. You know, or why and or I'd say something like, Well, why is the grocery store downtown named like that? That's all right. We're doing fine. So but what that meant for me, sitting around after dinner, listening to stories, is that to be a part of the family, uh, you had to learn how to tell a story. You had to learn that stories had beginnings and they had endings and they had this middle that actually had to do something. And that you had to look at people and you had to tell your story watching the eyes of the person that you were telling the story to. And you pretty soon learned that you learned a lot about the story someone else was telling by looking at their eyes and looking at the set of their shoulders. And that they would tell you, if you're a little kid and you're not too sure, is this a serious story or is this a joke story? Or what should I do with this? So I have been a story listener and a storyteller for a long time now. So, you know, I've been looking around for something to demonstrate how powerful stories are. And, and, I, and I have something. I have a little show and tell that will tell us how important stories are. This. See this? This is a piece of paper with really fancy printing on it. Right? This is a piece of paper that I drew just before the workshop. It's got a smiley face on it. This has a one on it. This has a 15 on it. So this one's way more valuable, right? Because it's got a 15 on it. And it's bigger. And it's got a smiley face. This has got a stupid guy who's not even smiling on it. So everyone wants this, right? No. 
You see, this comes with a story that we all agree on. That this is worth something. That if I take this to the grocery store, I could swap it for a banana. And that's a hum very human story. And it's a very essential part of being human is having these stories. Because, you know, I could offer a chimpanzee who has a banana this dollar bill for the banana, chimpanzee is not going to go for it. Okay? They're not human. They're not going to go for it. They don't know the story. The story is this really is valuable. And you can use this with other people that know the story, and it all works out. But if you don't know the story, it doesn't mean anything. Stories actually are powerful, and they're these organizing principles that we use all over our lives, even if we're not very aware of it, who we are, what we do. Did you know that before a client comes to your office, they already have a story about you? They've never met you before. Maybe they talk to you on the phone, and they show up, and they're in the waiting room running through their story about you. Okay? And they have a story about themselves. And they have a story about what it means to go to counseling. And they have a story about that other counselor that they saw that said this or said that. Okay? You see, where we are our stories. They determine a lot about what we're going to see and how we're going to act. Pretty much 100% of y'all recognize that dollar bill when I held it up. Because everybody knows that story. Even people in other countries would know that story. Even people in other cultures. We'd have to go a long way back up in the jungle to find somebody who didn't know that story. Now, they may not know that particular dollar bill, but they know, okay, he's holding up some sort of money, and it's got a story. And the moment I know this story, then I'll look. Okay. Because stories are powerful. So, if you're sitting, if you're in therapy and you're sitting across from a family, then you're sitting across from a story. And if you're sitting across from a couple, you're sitting across from a story. And if you're sitting across from an individual, you may be sitting across from lots of stories. You know, stories of successes and failure and pain and triumph and strength and weakness. Now, I just said a whole bunch of words and everybody's nodding and smiling because it all seems so true. But that's only because you went into your own head and linked up your stories with those words. Strength, weakness, success, failure, pain, triumph. They don't just come out of my mouth and sort of wander around the room. You grab some of them and they have these little hooks for you. They have hooks into your own story. Okay, so that's how it works. That's how it works that there are these little hooks in our brain that hook onto the words and hook it to our story. And so now we're sharing a story because, yeah, I'm thinking about my successes and my failures, thinking about your successes and your failures. Now, they don't have to be exactly the same. But all of a sudden, we're starting to participate in the same story. That's how a conversation works. That's how language works. To participate in the same story. 
using words that are mostly recognizable. And so when a client tells me their story, I have these little hooks in my brain. And it's okay if I compare them a little bit to my own successes and failures, my own pains. That's how I know. That's how I joined the story. There's nothing wrong with it. I, I don't believe in a completely objective therapist that doesn't know what success is, doesn't know what failure is. Oh, come on. I've been there, okay? Um, and so I've got some hooks that will, will help out. All right. So I'm, I'm skipping ahead in my outline, as I always do, because um, I want to get to some of the juicy parts. So I want to talk about three different ways of telling a story. And these are just some things I've observed, and I've given them some names. So if you've experienced something different, you could give them different names, or you could add or subtract to what I'm talking about. So let's say a client comes in. And they're going to tell you a story. Almost, almost 100% of them tell you a story, except for the teenagers that just stare at you and refuse to talk. But pretty much everybody else tells you a story. The first story space they might inhabit, the first way they might tell a story, is to tell a story as history. Okay? Now, history is about being accurate. It's about recounting. It's about being linear. It's about being objective. Okay? Well, how many years have you been married? When was your divorce? How many kids do you have? Those are all very objective facts. And most of the time will be told in a pretty linear way. Because that's what we do with history. It also is objective. By the way, what that means in the story world... And in the therapy story world, is that we have to get out of ourselves to tell the story. There is a judge in a history story that sits outside of us, and even outside the therapist, and judges whether this is accurate or not. Did this really happen? Did it really happen that way? Did it happen that many times? Did it happen on that date? And it's not just me, and it's not just the therapist. It's sort of this objective somebody that's looking in and saying, did this really happen? Did this really, quote, big ear quotes, happen? So one of the problems with this, though, you know, you can get a lot of information from the history story. It's a very compact way to give a lot of information. That's what it's good for. But there's a downside. You see... Um, let's say I'm sitting with my therapist and I'm telling a history story and then she asks a question and I say, I don't know. I don't know. But what am I really saying? If I'm telling a history story and I don't know, what's the criteria for don't know? Well, it's that I can't tell it objectively in a linear fashion with absolute accuracy. That's what I don't know means in a history recounting of something. I can't tell you, I can't satisfy that objective observer that needs this to be a linear story that needs to be objectively accurate. And since I can't, then 
I, I don't. I have to say, I don't know. Okay, so you're dealing with a client with a his with a history story, and they say they don't know, and you also go, oh, and my client is also dissociates. Well, if they're telling a history story, and they dissociate, they got two choices. One is to make shit up because they don't have a linear scan. They're not sure of the objective reality because they weren't having an objective observer there, and so they have to make up something, and then they feel bad, and you feel bad, and or they have to say, "I don't know." Okay. So what I want you to get from that is when a client is telling a history story, that very accurate linear thing, and they say they don't know, what they're really saying is I can't produce this any further in a history format. Luckily, there are other story spaces we can inhabit. Okay, so let's move on to number two here. What I call autobiography. Okay, that's a non-objective history. That's the history where the point of view is what I saw with my eyes, not this kind of weird, imaginary objective observer. It's what do I remember? What was important to me? Let me give you an example because I dropped a stitch here and I'd love to go back and pick it up.、Um, let me give you an example of a history story, and then I'll give you an example. Of an autobiography story, and we can kind of see the difference. This is not a trauma story, by the way. This is not even a big counseling story. It's just—it's just a short story I remember from my childhood. So when I was six years old,、uh, my grandfather some days would take me down to the cafe and buy me pancakes, and I would sit at the table and eat two pancakes that were pretty large. On a plate with my grandfather, and afterwards we would walk back to the house. That's a history recounting. If you had been there, standing across the street, you would have seen my grandfather and I walk down the street. It was about three blocks to the cafe. You would see us enter the cafe. You would see two pancakes on the plate. I can remember all of those things. Well enough to tell you a history story, but now let me tell you that same story as an autobiography story, and it would go like this. You know, one of the most wonderful things in my childhood was when my grandfather would take me down to the cafe in the little town that I grew up. It seemed to be a long way because it was blocks and blocks. And when I got to the cafe out front, I would see all of those cars and trucks parked, and it would be a little scary. But I was with my grandfather, so I knew it would be all right. And he took me in there, and they sat me on a wooden box so I could be high enough to reach the table. And these huge pancakes would show up with these pats of butter on top. And I loved my grandfather because he never complained about how much syrup I poured over the top. I could have all the syrup I wanted, and I would sit there and I would eat those pancakes with my grandfather on those mornings. And then we would walk 
back down to the house. Now, what's the difference between those two stories? It's the point of view. And in an autobiographical story, see, I'm allowed to add in my feelings. I'm allowed to say what, how it impacted me when these events happened. Now, are those objectively, perfectly accurate? I have no idea. I do not exactly remember what I felt back then. But I remember how I feel now when I imagine those images, those things that are objectively true. I did walk with my grandfather down to the cafe. But I'm letting that story become part of an autobiography. I am mixing it up a little bit with who I am and who I want to be and how I see the world. And you're getting all of that in the story. It's very different than a history story. It's got a different point of view. And it puts me in the center of the action. The teller becomes the center of the action. In history, the center of the action is kind of somewhere off to the side somewhere. But in autobiography, this is my experience of what it was like and what I remember. And you also get an extra bonus because you know how I've stored that story now. It, you know, an autobiography story really supports a connection with myself and renews a connection with my grandfather and renews a, a connection with my hometown. All of those connections get renewed in an autobiographical story that they don't in a history story. Because in a history story, it's not about me. It's not about my experience. Now, the neat part about an autobiographical story is it can generate a ton of questions for the therapist. You know, where was the town? What was the cafe? What was the name of the cafe? What was it like? And that's the trap. That's the trap. Because if you're my therapist and you start asking me questions about this autobiographical story, it's going to push me back into a historical story. And the more uncertain I am about the precise accuracy of the tales, the easier it is to push me back to the story. Well, how much butter did they put on the pancakes? I have, I don't remember. I mean... I think of it as a bunch. But if you want a number, I don't have it. If you said something like, well, what do you think your grandfather thought? Well, that may be a pretty cool therapist question, but it takes me out of my autobiography space where I'm looking through my eyes, and now I have to go back into that objective space and think about, well, what was my grandfather doing sitting over there? You know, and so now I'm back to history. It's one of the classic things when a client begins to trust you and move into autobiographical space and we ask these questions that are meant to ground them or get more concrete information, what we end up doing is pushing them back into historical space and things get impoverished really fast. Okay, And the therapist gets bored because it's just history and so we decide we're going to fix it by asking more questions which pushed them farther back into history, okay? And then there is the big landmine for trauma survivors. And I bet you know what it is, where they look at you and they say, 
what if this is not true? What if this didn't happen? And that's exactly the question for a history because it's about accuracy, it's about objectivity, and then you're going to hit that landmine one of these days. Now, with an autobiography, that's a much smaller problem. And it's still a problem, but it's a much smaller problem. Because this is about my experience of what was going on and my present time experience with the memories of what went on. It isn't about how many pats of butter were on the pancake. It's the fact that I felt like there was plenty. It wasn't how much syrup was on the pancake. It's that I felt and remember the permission my grandfather gave me to be generous with myself. So if you're hearing an autobiographical story and you're a therapist, you can start to relate to it in the context of the story in the ways it affected the teller. That must have felt so good to have all the syrup you wanted, to have that moment of freedom as a child. You know, that doesn't come too often as a child, does it? See, that's different than how much syrup did you use? Did your grandfather get angry at you when you used that much syrup? Did your grandmother often get angry when you used too much syrup? I mean, yeah, okay, maybe nice questions, way out of the autobiographical space and you know what guys it's also a weasley thing for a therapist to do because history is so much safer for us therapists but to join an autobiographical space that takes some guts that takes me letting the story affect me some See, that, that means that y'all had to have those hooks in your brain that thought about what pancakes looked like to you when you were five, six years old. You had to go there. And you had to think about syrup. And you had to think about grandfathers. And you had to, I mean, that's what storytelling does. It's supposed to have those hooks. But if you're going to refuse those hooks in order to keep yourself safe as a therapist, then the client is going to come tell you this rich autobiographical story and you're going to look down at your notes, make a note and go, mm-hmm. And so what did your grandmother think about it? And you do that too many times and the client just will refuse to get out of history. They, they won't go there anymore. There's also a terrific thing about the autobiographical space. It's a real affirmation of our own identity and how we fit in the world. If you remember when I told that as an autobiographical story, it was about how I fit as a little kid with my grandfather. What did I experience? And by affirming that experience, I affirmed my right to have that experience. And you might say, well, but as a kid, did you actually, you know, it doesn't matter. In that moment, as I told you that story, I affirmed my experience of that story. And that is worthwhile. Actually, it is even healing to me, even though nothing particularly wrong was wrong in that moment. I just enjoy telling that story to kind of be with my grandfather again. 
that was ju- that was just a wonderful moment for me to tell it and to see Maddie nod. And then I thought, yeah, okay, so she risked having some hooks from her brain connect to this story. And now we're sharing a story and she let it affect her and it affects me. And now we're in this together. Okay. And I trust the experience more. So just to make this complicated, I'm going to say there's a third thing, way to tell this story. I didn't, it didn't show up all the time, but when it does, it's really powerful. It's the mythic space to tell a story. Okay, you've got history, which is just like this linear recounting, objective details. You've got this autobiographical, which is what did the teller experience in the moment. Myth does something else. And let me see if I can add to this story with myth. I loved my grandfather and I loved being there with him as I ate the pancakes. And I remember seeing the men of the town in there for breakfast in the morning. And they talked about the price of cattle and they talked about the price of feed and they talked about whether they should cut the hay now or wait or what the weather might do. And they talked to my grandfather since he owned the local grocery store about the what he expected the prices of beef to be when things came around to sell. And I now realize that when a grown man walked up to that table and looked down at me and said, oh, it's such a strong boy, he sure eats a bunch of pancakes. I bet he's going to grow up and be a real strong man. That that man was greeting me into the company of men in that community. I wasn't there yet, but he was making that opening. That was a ritual that he was going through, and I felt it. And I felt my grandfather say, you know, one day, you know, he's going to run that store. And I'm, I've got to make him big and strong. And I'm teaching him everything I know so that one of these days he can be here and run that store. They were making a place for me. You know, now I rarely go back to that town. I didn't take over the store. In fact, a, a, a food chain came in and lowered the prices and my grandfather's grocery store went out of business. But when I go to that town, you know, the shell of that store is still there and still means something to me. Unfortunately, about 10 years ago, the cafe there burned down and I really felt that the soul of the town had just been pulled out. And a connection that I had, very tenuous with that town, also died with that. That's a mythic story. That goes beyond my perspective from my eyes and begins to try to find my place as a human in the world. See, an autobiography affirms my experience. A mythic story affirms my humanity and my connection to the other humans. And it recognizes other humans' attempt to greet me into their community. It's a small community 
it makes a difference if you know who you're dealing with, you know? And so they began that process, and I felt it, even if, as a child, of how they would greet me into the community, how they would recognize me, how they would make, make a place for me, how my grandfather would begin to talk about his legacy that he would leave to me. These were all not just individual autobiographical pieces, but human pieces. I get to join humanity when I tell it this way, when I see the story this way. It both empowers me, but also humbles me some. I'm unique, but I'm also very common. It affirms my humanity also in a way that affirms my worth. I am part of that. I'm part of that community. I'm part of that history. I'm part of those days. So a mythic story, when a client can go into a mythic story, they start to deal with very different issues. They deal with the right use of power or the wrong use of power connection and humanity and what does it take to be a human being you know one of the things i love about reading the greek plays is the greeks were incredibly incredibly involved in the right use of power versus the wrong use of power they even had words for it the, the right use of power was called kairos and the wrong use of power was called despos where we get the word despot But when I think about it, and I remember being with my grandfather, I rem there was a whole teaching there about Kairos and Despos. The men around me were talking about who they do business with and who they trusted and who they didn't and why they didn't trust them. They were greeting me because of my grandfather and the trust he built up in the community. Okay. So all, I'm, I'm getting an education far beyond my own experience. I'm starting to share their experience. And through their experiencing, experience, I'm sharing everyone's experience as a human being. Not the only little town in the universe. When a client starts to tell a mythic story or a story from a mythic space, let me suggest that one of the first and great responses as a therapist is respectful silence. This isn't because they said something bad, it's because they said something important. Something that does not need to be rushed. When a mythic story is told, whether that's me with pancakes in a, in a cafe, or the myth of Theseus, in the, in the labyrinth with the Minotaur, we enter into sacred story. That specialness that needs to be recognized. It's like, oh yeah. And let me suggest as a therapist, your next move after the silence is to greet this other human as a human. Because the point of telling a mythic story is that it connects us with humanity and if you're a therapist, you want to also connect with humanity as your next move, as the next thing you say. If you can't connect with humanity, then the person will stop telling the mythic stories. They'll go back to the autobiography. 
But if you can't connect as a person in the autobiographical, they'll go back to the historical. So unfortunately, our response in some ways makes the space either safe or unsafe for different story spaces. It maybe it's my bias, but I think that there's some really powerful healing in the mythic telling of the story. As I told that story from a more mythic standpoint, not just from my standpoint of, of being a little boy, but my standpoint of being a man now and how they mix and how what it told me about being human, I began to feel that sense of what it's like to leave a place and not go back what it's like to lose something important and yet to see the shell of it when you drive through and don't stop because it's not there anymore. That reached a whole different part of me. Not an autobiographical part. It wasn't just about me. It was about all of us. And I started dealing with, I'm joining humanity at that point. Now, it's hard to be depressed and join humanity. It's hard to feel worthless and join humanity. Okay, I, you can. I've got some very, you know, I've, I've been. I'm very skillful at being depressed. I can. I can be depressed even, even joining humanity. But it's harder. It's much harder when I'm talking about all of us instead of just me. So I want to make us some space uh, for people to raise their hands and ask questions. Um, because I've unloaded a whole bunch of stuff on you, and I and I and I do so with a flurry of words, but I'm really interested in your words and your reactions, and your questions. So I'm going to back up for a minute, and uh, if someone wants to, like, wave a hand, and then I'll call on you and you unmute. Oh yeah, hi Kim. I just wanted to let you know that I'm not a therapist, so <laughs> I don't have any I don't have any of those questions. <laughs> Well, you know, Kim, let me let me talk about the question that I wish you'd asked. <laughs> as, a non, as a non-therapist, can I still use this stuff? And let me suggest that you can because we all tell each other stories for healing. And you don't have to be a therapist to get someone's story. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, and sometimes we tell our most important stories to the people we love, not the people we employ as therapists. Sure. You're right. I have a question then, if you don't mind. Sure. How do you, or is there a way to, when when someone is engaging you in the story, that you don't become so involved in the story, that you kind of pick up their emotions and things like that with it? Because I get that a lot of people who they just share that it has always been since I was a, since I was a child. And now that I'm older, I'm noticing that I kind of carry or pick it up. I don't know what I was doing as a kid to put it down, but I I struggle now more as an adult to actively and intently say, I can't take this. I need to get this off me. Sure, sure. So there are a couple of there are a couple of things you can do. One is you can start setting up some boundaries and just not go into those because it may not be good for you. And that's okay. If it's not good for you, don't go. No harm, no foul. But there's another thing you can do. You can see if the person you're talking with who's telling you the story will move up to a more mythic story space where you can join them as part of humanity and not as 
Kim, who is worried about what's their name. That's very personal, and it it's 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 tricky because you can get lost in there. But if if you can begin to tell the story and get them to tell the story of how we are alike as humans and how you relate as a human to that, then there's a little cushion there because I, I also think that as human beings, that's how we're meant to respond to some of these things. That's why the old folk tales and the old myths are so rich is because we can, we can enter them as another human being and not as me worried about you. Okay, so, uh, you know, I don't always answer questions, but I talk a lot, so. <laughs> you answered that go. very well, thank you. And I'll, I know that moving forward, I'll even attempt to do that when I'm telling other people's stories, that I'll try to make sure that I kind of engage them more from the humanistic part, the mythical part, versus Kim's personal X, Y, Z. That made a lot of sense, thank you. And one of the ways you can do is you can tell a, a, a story back on a more myth in a, from a more mythic space. Uh, I, I occasionally do some business consulting and some business workshops. And, and way back when I was working with a group that was really holding back all their best stuff. You know, I, they had the, all these ideas, but no, they wouldn't No, You know, they were like, Oh, we're not going to say, you know, we're, we're, we don't want to, we don't want to put it out there. And so the second day I walked up first thing I said, hi there. And I told them the story of Rapunzel. Now, this is a room full of business executives from a major corporation who are looking at this bearded guy telling them a fairy tale. You wouldn't believe the looks on their faces, but partway through they began to get it that what I was talking about is how the old woman selfishly, but also with some good intent, took the innocence of Rapunzel and locked it in a tower so no one else could have access to it and so that innocence would stay innocent forever. And how now we see that as a big mistake she was making and maybe even a source of evil that she wasn't letting things unfold. And they began to realize, oh my God, that's what we're doing. We're locking all our stuff in the tower and refusing to let it down. See, I just told the story back, but on a more mythic level. Uh, plus, it was my, uh, it, it, it was a lot of fun telling a fairy tale to a bunch of, of guys who, you know, had MBAs from Harvard and Carnegie Mellon. I mean, you know, what the hell? Uh, how many times you get to do that? So I'm, I'm getting a, a chat from Bree with, with a question. Uh, it says, I'm not a therapist either, but I am a client. My question is in terms of healing. What is the optimal way to tell a memory story, i.e. a trauma memory in history versus the same trauma memory in autobiography in terms of healing from the trauma? Let me suggest that all three of these story spaces are completely valid and they're, they're good for certain things. There are times when we just need a therapist to under, to get what happened to us. Just the facts, ma'am. You look like the old dragnet thing. Just the facts, ma'am. History is great. Two reasons. One of which, it gets the facts out in a very condensed and efficient way. And sometimes we just need to set up that context with our therapist before any of the rest of the story is going to make sense. So I'm okay. I got to tell you, you know, da, 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 da. I mean, 
it wasn't a trauma story, but I could have said that, you know, I grew up as a little kid in a town in Southeast Texas with less than a thousand people and where everybody knew each other. And, you know, I mean, I could, I could start with that kind of history and, and tell you who my grandfather was. And maybe, you know, if you're a therapist, you might need that history. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, there is some healing there knowing that someone else knows the facts. Okay. There is also healing in being able to tell your experience. But if you're a client, you need to work with your therapist in that telling because that gets very experiential. And as it gets experiential, it gets where it can overload you. So one of the things that happens sometimes in autobiography when I'm with the client is I'll help them move to a more autobiographical tell story space where they're telling it there. Uh, they'll get a little frustrated because I'll stop it before we get, I said, no, that's enough for today because it's a big experience and I'm going to, I'm going to make notes and we'll come back to that next week. Okay. Now that, that infuriates them and it infuriates me when I'm a client with my therapist. Okay. Cause I just want to tell the whole thing, but my, I have, I have a pretty smart therapist and she understands that if I, if I did the full autobiographical story of something that was really painful, it might be more than I can handle right now. And so history, absolutely. It's fast. It's easy. Let's, let's get this out. Let's get some context. That way I know the therapist knows what the heck I'm talking about. That's great. Autobiography. Great. It brings the experience out, puts that in the therapy room, but you gotta go slower. That's the trade off. You gotta go slower. I hope, uh, Bri, I hope I answered your question or at least approximated an answer. Yeah. Oh, yeah, Crystals. <clears throat> Thank you for sharing. I am at work. I do a group called Telling Your Story about how to um, tell a recovery story and break stigma and all that. Um, I think for me, one thing that stood out was um, when you told the autobiography story, I was like really in, in, into it. Um, but then when you told the, oh, that's my memoir, but the, the mythic story, like I almost felt like I was going to start crying or something, just like the, the way it connects to humanity and to belonging and to some of these larger concepts that make us human. Um, and also, I, I think that's part of the reason why I really like uh, fiction, because I, I feel like it can like, um, and everybody wants a true story. Everyone wants it to be true, but it's emotionally true, or it tells truths that can't be told in facts. And um, yeah, so I really appreciate it. And also just thinking about like my experience in therapy and how my my therapist might, might do something like that or slow you down or which means you have to feel stuff yes. we just like are telling it and maybe if I just told the no I'm taking over your presentation if I just tell the whole story at some point in there it's going to become too much for me and then I'm going to shut off and I my therapist is totally able to figure it out right now but you know 
at first she wasn't, and you might think that you're doing all this stuff with the client, but really the client's not even in the room, and the story's just getting told. Yes, yes, and and that that if if the teller is not there for the story, it doesn't count. Yeah. So we got to keep the teller in the room while they're telling the story, and someone who dissociates thoroughly can literally tell a story and not be there to tell the story, and that's a big problem. The other piece in talking about truth and stories, uh, it reminds me of a story. Um, a true story, in, in 1935, um, uh, anthropologists went out to the Lakota tribe to see if they could um, gather some of their stories um, to preserve them and, and to know them. And um, the anthropologist uh, learned that there was, there was a very wise old man named Black Elk, and he had a lot of stories. So. Uh, the anthropologist sat with him for several days and listened to his stories about creation, about the tribe, about what things meant. And at one point, the anthropologist said, but, you know, are these stories true? I mean, did they really happen? And Black Elk thought about it for a moment. He said, well, None of these stories really happened, but if you listen carefully, you'll realize that all of them are true. So one of the things I, that I, why I love that story is I remind myself as a therapist that there's a difference between accuracy and truth. There's a difference between objectivity and full, rich experience. And sometimes it's a trade-off. I mean, it'd be lovely if we could have them all at once and occasionally we'll make a hole-in-one and it'll be something that's... But you know what? Humans being humans, sometimes we have to select. I can give you more of my experience, but it may not be as accurate. Or I can be super accurate, but my trade-off is I'll have to leave out some of my experience. Okay? So things... true. And I, you know what? As a therapist, I often talk about uh, talk to my clients uh, and we'll use the word accuracy versus true i reserve true for something that really means heartfelt thoroughly human rich experience and accurate for that kind of linear objectivity and there are times that you you need to say okay i need you to be really accurate about this that happens but you know <laughs> when I'm in, my, in the therapy room, I'm not pushing that one too hard. I am mostly interested in how true can this story be? How much of yourself can be reflected in this story? How much of your attachment to wider humanity can be reflected and grasped and developed in this story? I'm way more interested in that than whether it is just accurate. Okay, wait a minute. I'm getting, I'm getting a, a chat from Emma. Follow-up question to that. How do you let many tell the story when there are several storytellers? How does that work? Thank you, Emma. I think, okay, knowing that I'm just a therapist, I'm a guy who likes stories, I'm not even the brightest therapist in the room here. I think that's the core of working with dissociative identities is letting there be many storytellers okay i think one of the big mistakes that therapists make 
is they want to push it down to be one story with one storyteller. And already we're in trouble here. Okay? What if you had a space where all stories were greeted and all storytellers were greeted and each storyteller was worked with to see if they could actually re tell both an autobiographical and a mythic story space. And what if each part was able to connect to wider humanity? What if each part was able to connect to the humanity of all the other parts? Okay, so I, I think there's some healing going on in there. It is actually less different than people suspect from having a group of all these outside people who are all telling stories and they're all relate hearing stories and they're all trying to relate as human beings. Okay, that's good. Well, if you just got a bunch of people in one body doing the same thing, I don't I don't see a major difference other than you only you know it's cheaper because you only have to buy one chair. You know, because it that's kind of you know it's, it's real cost savings. Chairs are expensive. Okay. Oh, there's there's Maddie's chat. Do you do you want to say that, or you want me to read it, or do you just? So sure, I I'm just. <coughs> so part of what I think can be so difficult for some survivors, and I'm not sure I'm going to accurately capture everything in this, but is that especially when harm comes from. And that can either be overt harm or be a, um, not attending to somebody who has been harmed, right? Yeah. Um, but is that they have to make really difficult choices around disconnecting from their families or, um, and that can sometimes mean like generations, right? Um, sure. They lose yes. access to their stories and their family stories. And so I think I'm understanding what you're, I, I am understanding what you're saying. The, but in that situation, there's something about that for me that makes the mythic story and the connection to the mythic story even more important, but that there's potentially also a source of pain. Oh, yes. Involved in that level of storytelling as well. Thank you for pushing me to a little more nuanced, uh, you know, in, in, into my into my more nuanced material. Um, I gave a very very simplified, oversimplified idea of story. In fact, one of the challenging pieces is that we all grow up in a sea of stories. Okay, so I'm sitting here and I have the story of Bill, and tell you about my grandfather. I'm also Bill, who has a story about being a therapist. I'm also Bill, who has to fight off all those stories told by John Wayne in those thousands of Westerns that I saw as a child. I mean, it's not just one story. That would be so simple and so wonderful. And I know I told you that, oh, yes, hey, it'll be just one story. It's like, no, that's not the way it works. Because part of what happens when someone decides to leave a, an abusive family is they're also trying to leave an abusive story of who they are and of why that happened and what they should do next. I mean, 
there's a script. And sometimes I've had people say, you know, I, I love my aunt. I would love to be, you know, to go back and visit her. But she'll just tell me those same stories again. And then they'll say, but she's safe because she never did those things. I say, she never did those things, but I'm not quite sure about her safety. If she's still telling the stories that came from the family that abused you. Okay. So that I, I love stories and I tend to, to, to see stories as all wonderful and all enriching. I said, there's some bad stories out there and there's some hurtful stories out there. And there are some, some ways that people can tell stories to themselves that hurt themselves. Okay. So I don't want to, I don't want to be too naive here. Um, one of the things that I, I want you to keep is that sometimes when people say they need to not speak to a family member or to leave a family, what they're trying to do is leave the story too. And if that family still has access to give them the story, then it's still going to hurt. In, in other words, you cannot go home for Christmas, but if you read the freaking emails, you know, I mean, it's six and one half dozen another. You might as well have gone home for Christmas. Uh, you you got to also insulate from the destructive stories. Or if you can, and this takes a brave person and a skillful therapist, you can sometimes take those stories, deconstruct them, reconstruct them with using the same parts. It's kind of like a kit and tell them out in a different way. Now, I don't know, I'm going over time, but y'all are still listening, so I'm just going to keep going because I'm having a good time. Let's imagine that there was a destructive story, and the, the way it was destructive is it took the client, that, little, that person or that little person they were, and put them in a very uh, subsidiary role. They were just a bit player in their own lives, in their own experience. As in, you don't know your experience, you don't know what really happened, you don't da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's that one, that story. But what if, through telling a more autobiographical story, the client was able to move themselves to center stage? where their experiences count and what they saw counts in the story. Okay. How healing would that be to go from this, you know, bit player in the movie that stands in the back and has no lines to the star of the show who has an opinion, who has ideas, who gets to see what happens, who may be, maybe even gets to tell the truer, more mythic part of the story. A story about suffering, but also a story about tenacity. A story about endurance. A story, you know, one of the things that, that I find so sad in so many of the stories I hear from both trauma clients and non-trauma clients is there's no hero in the story 
I mean, what do you do with a story that has no hero? I'd love to get, try to get people to retell the story where they are the hero in the story. And heroes don't always succeed all the time, certainly not the first times. And heroes do suffer, and heroes do have pain, okay? So, unfortunately, the word hero in our Hollywood context often means, you know, supernatural, and they never get hurt, and da da So, a little bit of hero education has to happen here until they can talk about the hero that is wounded. They can talk about the hero that endures, even if they cannot change it. Uh, and there's a there's a scene from a movie that always comes up when I think about this. Uh, it's actually a pretty good movie many years ago um, about the Scottish Highlands and uh, and the, the the fight of the Scots against the British, the English at the time. And um, the theme of the story is that which cannot be changed must be endured. That which cannot be changed must be endured really stuck struck a chord for me in the climactic scene the hero of the story who has a large and somewhat clumsy strong but clumsy sword is facing off with an adversary that has a light sharp and wicked sword and really knows how to use it and he cannot compete and at the climax of the scene the hero grabs the blade of his opponent's sword and holds onto the sharp edges and immobilizes his enemy at incredible cost. That which cannot be changed must be endured. And that is the way he wins and walks out of there and goes on to have a life. That's much more the story of a trauma survivor than it is, oh, and I, you know, and I'm Superman and I, I fly over buildings and I beat up people. Uh, no, it's about being the un-Superman, the not-Superman. But can that still be a hero? Can you still, still tell your story as the hero who is not super? The hero that must endure that that cannot be changed. The hero that has triumphed through endurance, even if it meant not doing some things or not saying some things that you dearly wanted to say and do. It's a different kind of hero. Other questions, other ideas? We will probably have to sign off at some point, but you tell me because I'm having a good time. I wanted to. Oh. Oh. No. Go ahead, Matt. Somebody. I, I wanted to. Um, <coughs> just having recently gone through um, some psychodynamic training, the idea of, um, right, so the client and their story, the therapist and their story, and then they co create a third story together which I just wanted to put put out there. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's, I think that's therapy, and I think that's healing. And I think that we have lots of different names for it, and it's what I try for in psychodrama, it's what I try for in storytelling. It's what, it's, it's what good talk therapists do. I mean, but I think that if 
there's not a joining of stories, if there's not uh, some new story that comes out of it, I don't think it's very healing therapy. Now, again, I'm the story guy, so I'm biased. But that's what I truly believe. Well, I, what I'm thinking is we're always, um, there's always a co-creation of a story. It can just be a harmful story. Sure. Right? Yes. 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 So you have to think about who you are in the story, uh, in your own story. Are you the hero? Are you the villain? Are you the victim? You know, all of those are different places to be in a story. And being able to move your role in a story is an incredibly powerful thing. Uh, and you can you can see all sorts of people throughout history who have moved their role from the victim of oppression to someone who is worthy of being recognized and listened to. It's a triumphal story. And what it's about on a story level is changing from one role to another role. So I'm going to launch off on some new new content just because we're sort of there anyway. You know, there are also four ways to tell the story. And that makes a difference in how it comes out. And you can help clients shift between them and get different things out of them. It's not like one's right and one's wrong. You get different things out of them. You know, one way to tell the story is as a tragedy, which is the, is to focus on the pain and suffering. And what you're hoping is that triggers empathy both in the people that hear it and also in the heart of the person who's telling it. That's the purpose of good tragedy is this happened. Let me tell you about the pain and suffering so I can feel my own empathy for my condition and I can see that mirrored in your eyes and we can connect through empathy. And so it's about understanding. It's about acceptance. That's where the strength comes from a tragedy. But, you know, you can also tell a story as a as an irony this is where you focused on kind of the acknowledged humanity of the thing how we all kind of feel that way you know one of my one of my favorites is is that there's that great comic line is i don't mind dying i just don't want to be there when it happens now, it's a joke and it's ironic but it also sums up what so many of us are thinking in part of the human condition you know, it's like, what am I really scared of? I'm not scared of being dead. I'm scared of the, the journey to get there. You know, I've, I've, I've spent my life, you know, working on a healthy food and exercise and doing the right thing. And I suddenly discovered I'm going to get old anyway. That's irony. You know, it's kind of a cross between tragedy and comedy. And it, and it, but it puts the focus on humanity. This is what we all go through. I'm joining you. You're joining me. You know, when I said that, I saw Crystal smile and I thought, yeah, okay, see, we're together on this. We're both human beings right now. You can also tell the story as a romance. That's a focus on, yes, on love, but also on loss and reunion. On, on those connections that come and go and what it's like to have one and to lose one and to regain one. And it triggers deeper connections and people you know if you ever want to see this in this in this in, in all in in marvelous black and white uh the movie casablanca is all about this that's why it's such a great romantic movie okay so 
one of the threads through this, if we follow one of the main characters, it's about this guy that finds the love of his life and he loses it, loses her for a bad reason. And then he finds her and loses her for a good reason. You know, and, and, and nothing really changes. He loses her. That's the deal. But what changes in that is it's a great romantic story because the meaning of it changes and the why changes. So he loses her for a bad reason, then he loses her for a good reason. And then he goes on with his life, she goes on with her life, and you realize that that there's something good and affirming that's happened here. And that's a, that's a terrific healing romance. And then last one is a comedy. And on this one, the focus is on spontaneity and on play, but it's also on the, the rightness and the sort of good, what my... One of my graduate school professors used to call the goodness of fit, where things just really fit. You know, they say uh, Shakespeare, if it's if it's a tragedy, you can tell it's a tragedy because someone dies at the end, and you can tell it's a comedy because there's a wedding at the end. You know, and and that's a little glib, but it's also a little deep. In other words, you know, for there to be a comedy. Then there has to be a joining together. There has to be a celebration. There has to be something creative and spontaneous about these two people getting together and forming a life. And you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, it can look like, oh, well, it's just a, a, a nice happy scene. But it's more than just a happy scene. It's what comedy's really about, which is creativity and generativity. So. Notice that you can tell the same story from any of these four viewpoints. And sometimes having someone change their viewpoint can tell them a lot about the story. I mean, we've all had clients who come in and they're attempting to tell a comedy. And right in the middle, it becomes a tragedy. And it it surprises them more than it surprises us. Because they had intended to tell it as comedy. And then they realized that this is not a common, that there was pain and suffering. This wasn't all about creativity and generativity. Yeah, it might have been some, but uh, oh, wait a minute. I'm... And one of the things we know as therapists is it's a sign of, of I hate the phrase, but I got to use some phrase, good mental health. If someone can be telling a comedy and when it's no longer a comedy, they can shift spontaneously to telling it as tragedy. They don't keep telling it as comedy, but it's clearly not a comedy to anyone in the room. Okay? But what if they can shift and go into tragedy and get that rich piece that you get from good tragedy? Okay. That's cool. That, may, that, that one move may be an incredibly healing move for the client. That I can, I don't have to tell this as a comedy all the time. I can tell this as a tragedy. Or to be able to tell something as irony. To realize this happened to me and you know what? It happens to everybody. You know? And maybe, maybe it's not, maybe I can move it from tragedy to irony and help me connect with all the other people in the world that have gone through this. And now I don't feel alone. Now that doesn't mean there weren't some pain and suffering, but now 
I'm not alone. Oh, by the way, I I love to tell folk tales, and and so I'm always talking. I love Celtic folk tales, and you know the difference between uh, you know a, a happy Celtic folk tale and a sad Celtic folk tale. In a happy Celtic folk tale, uh, in a, sorry, in a sad Celtic folk tale, the lovers die far apart, and in the happy Celtic folk tale, the lovers die together. Okay, um, that's partly funny but it's also partly that sort of like wait a minute uh, what's the difference well the difference is connection and the difference is loneliness and the difference is meaning and sometimes the healing of a tragedy is to move it a little bit into irony and realize yeah this hurt me and it's suffering but I can now join with others who have felt the same thing and been to the same place and that there is something affirming and there is something about having that identity that I didn't have before that makes this more bearable or better or something. So it makes a difference how you tell it and whether you can move back and forth between these four. And if you can do that with some suppleness, that's the sign of somebody who's really healing. And a therapist who can help people do it with a certain amount of supple, suppleness is a pretty skillful therapist. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm getting lots of chats. I don't see questions, though. There's some cool comments on the chat, though. So thank you, guys. Yeah. Does anybody have a question? This isn't, oh, a, crystals, yeah. this isn't a question, um, but <clears throat> you were talking about the... Um, or someone asked a question about like doing therapy with um, multiple people in one body. And um, that I think that for a lot of our therapy was everybody had a different story and a different perspective. So we could not talk because every time we thought of something to say, someone else said, no, that's, that's not really true. That's, this is true. And then it was just like this whole thing that like, um, I think we still do that. It's like, oh, this person was saying all this and this and this. I don't really feel that way. Like, what are they talking about? Like, well, you're two different people. You don't have to feel the same way. Well, and that's one of the real challenges with dissociative identity because there's a built-in denial of the other stories. In the, in the, in the original design, now, not the way it has to always be, but the original design wasn't just to be able to carry multiple stories, but for each story to be able to deny the other story. Because you never knew when you might need to come up with a story that was going to keep you safe by denying the other story. So, I mean, it, it's, it's not as easy as a bunch of storytellers who are all patiently waiting in line to tell their stories. Uh, it'd be nice if it was, but that's actually not the way it is. It's a bunch of people who are waiting in line to tell stories, only the other guys don't want them to tell the story. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's like, 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 like being a stand-up comic at a nightclub of, of really drug belligerent people. I mean, they don't want to hear your next joke. You know? This is not good. So some of this as therapists is making a space where stories can be listened to and accepted. 
And that's also why I stay away from words. Notice I, I said accepted, not believed. Uh-huh. That's, that's a big ask, okay? I don't start with a big ask. I start with a, with a small ask, which is, can we just accept other parts right to tell their story? Yeah. Can we just start there? Or even sometimes, even just the fact they have a story. I mean, can we start there? I mean, I'll start as simple as we need to start to get this rolling. Okay, other parts have other stories. Really? Yes, and we're just going to let that be okay. Now, I just said that in a sentence, and it's like six months of therapy. You know, I mean, you know, so, so I'm pretty glib, and I make it all sound like, yeah, but no, it's, but it's a lot of hard work. Uh, but pretty soon, there's this idea of, no, I hate them, I don't like them. But, yeah, I guess if they want to talk to you and tell their story, you know, I guess it's okay. Hey, I consider that like super progress. I'm, I'm, I'm all into that. But what if one or two parts can hear a story from another part, accept it, and move away from believe it to experience it with the other part the way a a a storyteller and listener get together to create this space for the story where there's something going on between the two that is connecting and it's not believe it or not believe it it's can you tell it can you accept it and can you accept the humanity of the person that's telling it can you contain the feelings of challenge of their experience and get past that to maybe a little more mythic piece to realize that maybe all human beings have to grapple with what they're grappling with and they've got one solution to that problem but there are many right solutions there are a lot of right answers in this world that may be one and that may be the rightest answer that they've got for themselves right now Thanks, Bree. That it's okay to have different stories. Matter of fact, dissociative identity is all about being able to contain different stories. Well, if you're a storyteller, you know, that's what you see. How many stories do we need to contain here? Well, okay, let's contain a bunch of stories. And not little wimpy stories, like big, hairy, awful stories that have to be contained. But if they were all let out at once, they would all crash into each other. And so I trust the system that maybe there's a reason. And I don't demand that somehow we all come up with a single story. Now, one day, maybe, okay. I mean, all for it. But it's not something you have to do. Okay? You don't have to do it. This is about making space for all of the stories and being able as a therapist to do a little bit of air traffic control so they don't run into each other on takeoff. Okay, other questions. And how do we move that out of the therapist's office and into the real world? Well, first, I'm glad you put... (laughs) Thank you, Emma. Uh, How do we move out of the therapist's office and into the real world? I'm glad you put air quotes around real. Um, 
Because I, I don't see that. What I see is that we've got stories in the therapist office, and those stories are going to go outside and bump into other stories. And there's a certain weird Darwinian sort of thing that happens. But that's why I want people to have strong stories. And that's why I sometimes challenge stories, not the truth of the story, but the depth of the story, the commitment to the story. I want to develop commitment to the story, the deep truth of the story, because when they walk outside, they're going to be bombarded by other stories uh, that want other things to happen. And they and you gotta you gotta be true to your story. And again, I I I grew up in the in the in the world of John Wayne and. Um, you know that was the story about how to be a man, and I could I could I could be whatever I wanted to be in my room as a boy. But when I went outside, I had to deal with that story because it was going to be everywhere every guy was. Okay, so I had to get some sort of grip on my own alternate story, and I had to learn to be loyal to it and not sell it out, and be able to defend it at least inside because. I was, I was going out into a, a, this landscape of a bunch of different stories, some of which would do me harm. And that's not even counting trauma. That's just culture. <laughs> okay? It gets weirder and worser when we talk about trauma. And that's just, that's something everybody can, you know, can identify with is, uh, you know, I've, I'm, I'm looking at a bunch of, of women on the screen, and which reminds me that, of course, when a woman goes outside, you hit a bunch of stories. And whatever you think and believe about yourself has got to stand up to those stories. Traditionally, there's been a lot of force behind those stories. Glad to see that that's loosening up some. Long way to go yet. More questions. Oh, crystals, thank you to your own self. Be true. Absolutely. I think I like a little Shakespeare to, you know, make the day good. I didn't even know that was Shakespeare. I just know it's on my recovery coin. Uh, it's on the recovery coin because Polonius said it to Laertes in Act 1 of Hamlet. So, you know, it's a thing. I, I, I suffer from the burden of classical education, so what can I say? You know, it's, it's a lot of trivia. I think it's hard when some of my experience, like, where I found out about trauma, different, like, a trauma story, when it was told in front of other people, and I, and, and it was told casually, and, like, like it was, I don't know, one was like it was the trauma, and the other one was just like, oh, we're driving to the zoo, let's, this was a horrible thing that happened to you. Anyway. Sure. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's it's really shocking to hear a trauma story told in a very dissonant uh, way of telling it. I mean, if you tell it as a tragedy, it kind of works pretty easily. If you tell it as a comedy, you yeah. got to kind of wonder. And the weird thing is to tell it as, it, it, for it to be told as a romance. I get that, sadly, a lot. Can, can you explain more about that? Or 
Maybe uh, yeah, it, it's remember that that a, a romantic telling, a romance, the focus is on love, loss, and reunion, and it's about connection. And I, I get trauma stories told as stories of love and loss and reunion, as opposed to I should run like hell. Um, you know, I, I, I'd be much more interested in, in, in this being, you know, a tragedy uh, or even an irony. Okay. But a romance, uh, I got to think, okay, somebody taught you. Oh, yes. Thank you, Maddie. Trauma bonding. Yes. That's a, a thank you. I guess that's my story definition of trauma bonding is a, an abusive story told as a romance. Thank you. Well, we're getting down to uh, closing in on 5.30, and I'm going to go ahead and try to move off. Um, it's hard to do because I'm having such a good time talking to you all. Uh, if you have more questions, I am uh, available. And, you know, uh, Emma has my, has my email, and I'm sure she'll relay, or maybe she'll relay um, questions. And I, and I love questions, and I like to answer them. Uh, and and I'd be happy to come back someday if you guys guys want me to. Um, to close, no, I'm I'm going to close by telling you a story, and it's it's a bit of a tragedy and a bit of an irony, and it's it's a bit of a history, but I think it's got some mythic parts to it. Um, there was a child development center. Uh, and one day when all the children were out on the playground, um, they were fascinated watching a guy across the street who was working on, uh, the light pole and he was, he was up on that big arm in the cherry picker, you know, working on the light pole. Well, in the midst of all this, the guy falls out of the cherry picker onto the street and dies. Oh, the teachers at the child development center were like, Oh, what do we do? I mean, how do we explain this? They're five years old. I mean, you, you, you know, we can't, we can't really explain this to them. What do we do? What they did is they went out to the toy store and they bought a bunch of trucks with cherry pickers and little action figures. And they spread them out in the room. They didn't demand, but they spread them out in the room and the kids went over and they they, they, they moved the man up in the cherry picker and then they pushed the man out of the cherry picker and then they, you know, and they brought, they, they got some ambulance, they brought the ambulance and they put him in the back of the ambulance. They reenacted the stories with the toys over and over and over. And one of the curious things is it also began to, to change. Yeah. Where some of the kids, the ambulance went to a place and then the person's family came around and stood around and they, they put they put little action figures as as like we're having a funeral, we're having a, a remembrance. Okay. And some of them, the man falls out of the cherry picker, but then he learns to fly and he flies off. And they began to think about ways that they could understand and they could deal with this story so they could carry this story. And they moved it up into that mythical space, which is partly magical and partly deeply, deeply real. 
and all and the and, and the kids stress level about it began to go down and down and down as they played with it and i think that's what healing stories do it lets us play with these experiences and that's why i i kind of push away a little bit from history this needs to be in a space that we can play with it what happened and what could have happened and what might have happened and what do we want to happen next and what might happen next and what happens if there's magic so that's what i want to leave you with and thank you so much i i loved your questions and i love being here and it was so good to see all spaces thank you thank you bill thank you bye-bye everybody bye bye thank you bill thank you for listening your support really helps us feel less alone while we sort through all of this and learn together maybe it will help you in some ways too you can connect with us on Patreon and join us for free in our new online community by going to our website at www.systemspeak.org. If there's anything we've learned in the last four years of this podcast, it's that connection brings healing. We look forward to connecting with you.